the last episode of A Quiet Voice, we used the Boa Stone, just one site on the historic Crowpatrick Heritage Trail. The Boa Stone is a relic to how pre-pagan Neolithic people used to relate to the land and how that tradition has almost through the blood lineage in Ireland carried through into the modern day. Though the rolling sun phenomenon may be just a probability in the eyes of an astronomer, it is nonetheless an amazing relationship between the sun and the land. And it happens two times every year. In this episode of Quiet Voice, we're going to explore the deeper, subtler elements of this experience of being at these sacred sites and what they can tell us around the relationship to ourselves and our own creative and spiritual pursuits. Thank you for joining me. My name is Colin Ward. As always, these podcasts come to you every week or as often as I can make them to dive into the stories of my life, not to tell you how to think or what to believe as much as to invite you to be more introspective about your relationship to yourself, to the land, to nature, to your creativity. And my hope, as always, is that by listening, you learn a technique or an insight that lets you confront the creative blocks or spiritual barriers which are plagued in modern society. When I visited the Boa Stone for the first time, I was with the Irish School of Shamanic Studies. I was taking an investigative approach into a more spiritual side of myself, and I did not expect that this course, which I thought dealt with trances and meditation and vision journeys, would have a physical component. I did not know that the tradition of shamanic techniques is as old as people have inhabited Ireland. Though there is not much evidence to suggest that the Druids were shamans in the same way that the Amazons or the Siberians were, or the Inuits, or any other indigenous people all around the world, what is clear is that they had a animatic relationship with the land in which everything around them was living, not just a rock, not just a tree, but that each thing was an embodiment of a great spirit through which they were living in it themselves, bearing witness to and part of this great oneness. The beautiful thing around shamanic ideas is the fact that they are prolific all through the whole world in disparate cultures with very little physical connection. Even though the Amazon tribes have no connection physically 
to the African tribes or even the Siberian uh, shamans in Russia, which is where the original word shaman comes from, they still pull upon the same landscape. They still pull upon the same means to describe their world. So it was very surprising when on the early stage of that shamanic instruction, I was brought to the Boa Stone as an example of how the physical world makes spirit manifest for us. Aldo with the shamanic school described that the Boa Stone is an ancient site that is on a line called ley lines. Now, I had heard of ley lines before, but to me they were reserved into the you know, alchemical, the occult, the history section, the, the section of the history channel that would be reserved for alien visitors or Egyptian uh, Egyptian conspiracy theories. But on a fundamental level, ley lines originated from the observation that these ancient sites, be it Stonehenge or the pyramids or the Boa Stone or stone circles all across Ireland, they originate on a particular set of patterned lines that suggests that there is more to the positioning of these places, these sites, than just a random scattering on a map. And many people will detect the place where a ley line is located by simply just sitting down very casually. They will find themselves sitting on a ley line. Take it even further, these ley lines are an energetic web all across the earth, which link like blood vessels in a body, the sharing of energy systems in an ethereal membrane, an auric field in and around the earth. Now we know, of course, that the magnetic field of the, of the earth exists. We have instruments to observe it, but there is very limited scientific evidence to suggest that ley lines are a quote-unquote real thing. Yet one cannot deny that when you step into the space of the Boa Stone, this quartzite rock with a view of Cropatric, there is a palpable force. People even describe that when they sit on the rock for long periods of time surrounded by the same cup and circle formations I described in the previous episode, which could allude to a portal between two worlds that exists at that place, or it could merely symbolize a celestial arrangement or the phenomenon of the rolling sun, people nonetheless feel physically ill if they sit on the rock for too long. They feel a creeping sense in their stomach, as if they're falling if they were closing their eyes or just feeling nauseous and unnerved. Now, a psychologist might call this a 
psychosomatic response, that somebody knows that there's a particular sensation that can happen at these sites, and so they create it themselves. But a, a subscriber to the ley line philosophy and structure would say that the body is merely receiving the liminal space in which the world of the forms and the world of the non-forms becomes very thin. I always imagine like an hourglass in which there is but a tiny, tiny, tiny thread of structure which links the world that we can touch, see, taste, and the world that we can only intuit. The world of spirit, the world of the afterlife, the world of... Hmm, well, we don't even really know. But nonetheless, there's a quality of presence at this space that invites us to notice this liminality. And I use that word liminality because, well, it describes the edge that is beginning to soften between the veil as we see the world in front of us and the unseen world that's just behind. People have been finding ley lines ever since they have been described and long before there have been ancient methods people used to detect water that flowed underneath the ground. They would use primitive tools like, an, like a hazel branch shaped in the form of a Y, which when they would be walking barefoot on the soft grass, when they were over an underground aquifer, they would feel the hazel branch jump in their fingers. We may laugh at these crude mechanisms of detecting these ley lines or unseen places, but they were taken very seriously by many scientists for some time. Even though the experiential evidence of the felt presence of a ley line and of the detecting of underground water has not been experimentally proven. It didn't prevent the military of the United States using them to detect underground tunnels of the Viet Cong, which were laying traps for American soldiers. And it didn't prevent the CIA using them to detect landmines and other types of covert instruments and technologies and weapons. Even the Scandinavians used dousing rods to detect people that had been swallowed up by a big avalanche or avalanches. So perhaps if those types of big institutions with lots of experiments and information are using them or have used them with some degree of success, maybe that implies that there's something a little bit more that we yearn to touch upon. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this divining, as it's called, the detecting of underground water or ley lines, because, well, it converges upon the space at which every person must decide what is real to them. 
what they trust in their own experience versus what they listen to as an experimental proof. I recently came to possess an old pocket knife which my grandfather would carry. And I can remember, as I hold it in my hand right now, with this simple blue pocket knife with three or four tools, a blade, a nail file, scissors, and then uh, toothpicks, plastic toothpicks, how he would carry this around everywhere he went, probably placing it on his nightstand before he went to bed and picking it up in the morning. He was never without this knife. And even now, as I look at it, I see that it's missing one of its toothpick holders. And the other one is softened and dulled by constant use after a meal. It is a relic of a generation that is so different from me. I did not grow up carrying a pocket knife, and because I don't need a pocket knife, because the quality of my life does not require me to have a sharp blade at the ready. But I can recall fishing trips, and I can recall even when he opened up his mail, this pocket knife would, would be his tool. It's still sharp in a way that even steel now cannot get as sharp as it used to. I was talking recently with a tailor a third-generation tailor who has shears that were used by his great-grandfather to cut thread and fabric. You know the shears, if you've seen them, when they open and close, you can hear the slight touching of the metal, which is just a beautiful sound. They're heavy, yet balanced, and they form to your hand, even though they were made for, for, for every hand. They can be used so easily, and they never dull. They never dull. You never have to sit there and sharpen them. You never have to run a whetstone over the edge because the people of that era took time to craft it in such a miraculous way that with steel and materials that we don't even have anymore, we can't even reproduce these shears which were made less than 150 years ago. Now, why am I talking about tools? Why am I talking about shears and pocket knives? Well, it's to call our attention to the fact that we are not at the front or at the frontier of what can be known and what can be experienced. Every generation takes to the grave wisdom, skills, information, which then we can only hold in our hand and wonder how it could be used. There are scratches deep in this pocket knife that have been carved by probably the change in his pocket or his nails scratching against the metal. It's a keepsake that I will hold for a very long time. But even if I have a son or a daughter to pass this down to, will they understand how to use it? They wouldn't be watching me 
use a tool like a pocket knife? Well, maybe. But not as deftly or art, as artistically as my grandfather did. Even though this is a very small pocket knife, his big hands with sausage-like working fingers could pull it apart like, like a deft craftsman. And he wasn't a craftsman, really, in, in, a, in a carpentry sense or anything. Yet what I believe is that these mechanisms of divining are really just likely archaic or relics of longer-lasting intuitive connections to the land. Whether by necessity of survival or whether it's a product of long spanses of silence with only the wind or the crackle of a fire for company, people honed their relationship with this intuitive quality of being as if their life depended on it, because it, it may quite might may very well have. It is something that we are so far removed from now as we walk upon concrete with our body being constantly penetrated by electromagnetic frequencies, high-pitched ringing or droning of machinery, like that of a computer or an air conditioning unit, the fluorescent lights flashing at high speeds above. We are so overwhelmed with stimuli at every second that quite possibly we are denied that inner quality of being unless we really set out to cultivate it ourselves. I spoke about this in the last episode. We do this through meditation. We do this through being in nature. We do this by spending time with the natural curiosities which percolate in our childlike mind when we are alone. Divining is a relic of that intuitive relationship to the land, and it reminds us that there are ways in which we can connect to nature that may be only known to us, that may be only known to us. And the miraculous thing about it is that then there's no wrong way. All the responsibility of having to do something right or do something correctly or is, is, is irrelevant because you get to form your own relationship with it. Do you hear that? There's no responsibility except for you to discover your own craft, to discover your own relationship to nature and to a sense of place. Divining to one person can be a way in which they detect a ley line which connects them even deeper to the sun that's shining on their face or the sound of the wind blowing through the trees. And to another, it's just an old kook who's walking around with a couple of copper rods waiting for them to cross. But who stands to gain more? Then each of us, when we take it upon ourselves to, to work with the tools that we have at hand and use them to just enhance our quality of life or our experience of being alive, we never stop learning. This episode is a call for you to 
investigate and to hold reverent the things in your life that you may take for granted often. The feel of your favorite pen when you sit down to write, a card that you like to send to people, or the feeling of maybe even the keys when you're typing an email to a friend, or the taste of coffee when you sit down with them. Every moment there is a wonderful invitation to dive into the experience of being there fully. It may require us to lose old habits that keep us trapped in limiting beliefs, that keep us ensnared by technology, by social media, by television, by news, which keep us anchored into a reality that is not ours. But rather, we can be humble in what we know and what we don't know, and just playfully inquisitive and curious. <laughs> just as my grandfather was. He wasn't a carpenter, but that didn't keep him from carrying around a knife which he could use to maybe whittle wood or use on a task when the time was there. It wasn't about doing the job perfectly for him. It was about enjoying the process. And that's what I could see on my first visit to the Boa Stone was all these people gathered around this rock, this quartzite rock, just bathing in the mystery of it all, bathing in this sense that we don't know more than what those people did, probably far less, but that being in that space, we were beginning to connect with something that they connected with, that joined us through an ancestral lineage and through a lineage of place and time. I mentioned before how the Boa Stone is surrounded by houses, and one of them is is uh, abandoned. It's falling apart because oftentimes people have a difficult time living near these powerful places of what's called geopathic stress. People experience illness when they sleep on ley lines or this type of thing. And there's a whole industry in Ireland that's, you know, in sort of a parallel world to perhaps what most people are interested in, in which people travel to houses and help remove ley lines and move them around and just allow people to find more comfort in their space. Yet, just in the same instant as I begin, and to articulate now, and began to observe back then at the Boa Stone, this lovely, playful quality of a ley line, I noticed that there was a lichen spot, a sense of mold on the side of the house which faced the boa stone. A dark patch. And right down the center of that dark patch of mold was a line of bare concrete about a foot and a half wide. It was as if heat had been applied to the concrete and had vaporized all the mold on that spot. And no matter what, the mold could not join and create this one circle. And wouldn't you believe it, that's exactly where we were detecting the ley line, was running right through that space of mold. Now, am I supposed to look at mold like 
Maybe a fortune teller looks at the bottom of the T for any indication, or am I just going to bathe in the mystery all the same? Looking at this beautiful dance between how I receive information about my world, coming from the experiments that scientists tell me are real, and the experiences which I know will baffle me to the day I die. It's all for us to decide, and these mysteries are all around us, and we must be very careful what sort of stories we allow to tarnish that childlike wonder, because it's so easily tarnished. Hmm. I still can see that patch of mold that is separated by this single line, and it baffles me, baffles me. At other places I visited later, I could see how ley lines would split a tree or split a hedge. Am I supposed to linger in doubt when I'm being put in places that call even my most fervent denial of spirit into question? <laughs> That's it for A Quiet Voice this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I wish you peace and presence, and I'll talk to you next time. Goodbye for now.